This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. There's so much power in just moving forward. Don't stop. Yeah. Don't stop. I mean, you can pause, reassess, maybe change your direction, but you don't stop. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Do you know what a meta-performer is? I didn't until I met my guest today, Stacy Borg. Stacy is a singer, a dancer, a producer, an educator, a waitress, a fundraiser, and a civic leader. All of those are facets of her job as the CEO of Shadowbox Live, the largest full-time resident theater company in the United States, based right here in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio. She was a founding member of Shadowbox back in 1988, which, if I've done my math right, Stacy, means you've been with the company for 31 years. So you were, what, like seven years old when you started? I like the way you do math. (laughs) (laughs) You do math like I do math. (laughs) Yeah, there are not enough fingers on these hands to get that math right. (laughs) There's so much I want to talk with you about. I'm so delighted that you're joining me here today. uh, I've watched you on stage and marveled at your many talents, but this is the first time we've had a chance to just just talk and explore. Oh, it is. I mean, I've had such a pleasure watching you with all of your adventures and cheering you on from the sidelines. And I'm thinking how, like, you're such a rock star. Like I'm a rock star on stage, but you're such a rock star, what you've accomplished and everything. It's just, it's really mind boggling. And I'm just so proud to be able to call you a friend. Oh, likewise, I'm very, very sure. So let's just ignore the fact that I probably didn't do my math right and go back to the very, (laughs) the very, early Stacy Board. Tell us who that little girl was and where she was growing up and take us back when and to where it all began. Right, exactly. Well, my parents met overseas. My father was in the service and my mom overcame really amazing obstacles to get herself through college and then taught overseas. And then my mom moved back to the States to have me when they when they became pregnant with me. Where exactly did they meet? Germany. And we grew up in Marietta. Marietta, Ohio. Marietta, Ohio. Yes, thank you. My father, that was his hometown. And so we relocated there when I was in second grade. And it was a great, it's the first settlement of the Northwest Territory, Kathleen. Just so you know. <laughs> thank you. And, uh, 
Miss Washington, so proud. <laughs> it's a tiny little town on the Ohio River. Were you in town kids or farm kids or? No, we were in town kids. We were on Sixth Street, but our street was brick, kind of like a if you're familiar with Columbus German Village type of you know type of feel, and it was a great place to grow up. It was safe. You got to do everything, and but there was nothing like I couldn't wait to get out. Like I could not wait to get out. But as a child, I got to do sports. I got to do music. I mean, I I loved doing it all, and I was. I was curious to do it all. I was, I, I just wanted to be active, you know, school. I was a very conscientious student, but it was not a priority. <laughs> it was, I, I really, it was a gotta do. <laughs> it was a gotta do. And I, I really mastered my ability of bullshit to get through what I needed to <laughs> get through. <laughs> you, you learned how to hack school. <laughs> I did. I did. And I did it very well. <laughs> But I just, I was really interested in, in all of that. And I, I, you know, I look back on it now and it was crazy. I, I was way too overextended, <laughs> so overextended, but I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. You said you got to do music. Well, tell me, because that's really how I think of you as a multi-talented music performer from rock to blues to opera and probably everything else in between. Were you one of those little kids that was standing on the coffee table singing in the living room all the time? Or No, no, not at all. In fact, I would say that I would, when I look back on my younger years, I would think of myself as, as, as sports-oriented first. So I was very private about my performance. When I was really little, my cousin would drag me. I mean, God love her. She would just, she would beat me over the head and make me do these shows for our family. But I went kicking and screaming. I loved it. I mean, I loved doing it, but I was very, I didn't want to do it in front of people. Was that stage fright or was it something else no, going on? No, it was so it was something so personal to me. It was not a fear. It was not a fear that I because I knew that I, I was good. I knew that I had talent. Wait, wait. Come back to that. At age what you knew you were good? Because for a lot of kids I don't remember not knowing I was good. Like in in, in some sense. I don't know. It, you know, I have this really interesting conflict that was never in conflict, right? Like I had this one side that was always incredibly confident in in who I was and and what I was capable of. And then I had this other side and they didn't really talk to one another. It was more like they balanced each other out. Like, you know, I there, there wasn't an ongoing struggle. But then I had this other side of me that was like, I can't believe, like, why would somebody think that I could do that? Like, why, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, but at the same time, I was like, yeah, I'm going to try. I, and maybe my confidence was more in my ability that I was going to give it my best shot, you know, and that really, for the most part, it's probably going to be okay and probably actually better than okay. But I was just going to do it. Like, that's what I knew, you know. But when I was really young, my mom was a singer and ah. not my profession, but she was a singer. She sang all the time. And, and it, you know, like every child, it drives you crazy, right? You're like, oh my God, mom, shut up. Like, seriously, mom, oh my God, you're so loud. Like, be quiet, you know? And she would, you know, go, you know, people say that I have a real, and she did, she had a beautiful voice. But as a child, you know, <laughs> it was like, oh my God. And because I didn't do that, I assumed, I think, that maybe that, that wasn't me. Like, I, there was, I don't know, something wrong with me, or, or but I didn't, and I still don't. I actually, you will not find me around my house just singing. Really? Like, that's just not, no, I don't do that. But I would sing in my bedroom with the hairbrush very quietly. 
I would sing with Barbara Streisand's all her records and I knew I wasn't off key. You know, my mom made me play piano. I didn't want to play piano. She made me play piano for seven years. I told her that was the one thing. I'm like, you're only going to get one. You were right. And it, you were right. <laughs> you were right to make me do this. With, with my mother, it was typing, which I took as an insult that she thought I was, you know, had nothing but secretarial feature ahead of me. And now I look back and say, how did she know the computer age was coming? <laughs> oh my God. Well, yeah, actually that would be my second mom was right, was typing. Cause I had the exact, I was like, I don't want to do this. That I want to be on stage or I want to do this. Like, I don't want to. Yeah. So anyway, but it was really personal for me. And so I have a funny story when my mom, when I was really young, my mom entered me into a Little Miss Ohio pageant, which I am so not a pageant girl by any means, but I did do this apparently. I was not successful, but I don't even remember going through it, but apparently I did have a good time because the following year they called, asked my mom if I would be wanting to participate and my mom declined. And I didn't really know what the conversation was, but I asked my mom was standing in the kitchen and I said, who was that? And she said, well, that's a little Miss Ohio pageant. They wanted to know if you wanted to do it again. And I was really enthusiastic. Yes, yes, I want to do it again. And she said, well, you can't. And I said, well, well why? And she said, because there's a talent portion and you don't have any talent. She <laughs> <laughs> did not mean it mean, like by any means. It's just for her, she would go around saying, and because I didn't do that, yep. she didn't know. Like she literally just didn't know. And what I think is so humorous now and I'm looking back on it is it didn't waver me at all. I just thought I felt bad for her because she didn't understand that I really was like, you know, she didn't have this knowledge that I had, which is super funny. It's fascinating where those those young moments of great clarity come from. So yes. that could have been a real slapdown for you, but something inside you knew that the issue was just this grown up didn't understand. And exactly. how old were you when that happened? 10 ish, 11? Oh, not even, no, not even 10. I mean, I must have been six or seven. I mean, I was young. Yeah. So right around that same age, the hilarious story in our family is in kindergarten, bringing in the Christmas list, you know, what do you want for Christmas? And I was fascinated with every toy I saw on Saturday morning television that did something interesting that moved. And as it turns out, all the ones back then were variations on guns. So, yeah, like the top five things on my list were these guns, <laughs> which for me had nothing to do with guns. Is I wanted to it have just, one. They moved and they did stuff. And they did stuff, and I wanted to see and feel how. But I can I remember vividly the kindergarten teacher, you know, flips over to mine and oh, here's Kathy's and starts reading, and it's gun. And, and there's a small reaction, and then it's gun, and there's a little larger reaction. And then there's this really awkward, uncomfortable chuckle, and she says, ha, 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 our little gun mall. Well, I had no idea what gun mall meant, but I could tell it wasn't good. Right. <laughs> but right away, the thought that came through my mind was, well, she just doesn't understand. It's not right. about the guns. But you know where that came from has always mystified me, but how important it was to my plowing through, like you said, you car you knew it was okay and you carried on. You know, that's why I think why I love being an educator so much is that there are so many brilliant moments that young people have that are so, in many ways, so far advanced than many adults. And I find that inspiring and an honor to be a part of them discovering that in themselves. Well, you know? and to sprink for you to have those moments to sprinkle a little pixie dust on them, a little confirmation yeah. or reassurance. Exactly. 
a little encouragement, right? Yeah. Because I can also remember how powerful it was, probably age 10, when a family friend sort of acknowledged and endorsed the flair I have for foreign languages, which exists nowhere else in our family that you can find. <laughs> Just you. Just me. You know, they prove, further proof that she's a little odd. Mm-hmm. That opened a whole horizon of possibility I had never known to imagine for myself. Did you mm-hmm. have moments like that? Was there a teacher or a coach or someone that... Oh my goodness. I had so many. I, yeah. I mean, I feel like I was, you know, I, and I don't know if this has anything to do with it or it was just me. I was a very, I think I was a very present child. Like I was... What do you mean by that? I mean, I was really in the moment. Like I was, when I was there, I, I wanted to do it, you know, and I wanted to learn. And I wasn't fearful. I was very, and yet I was, it's such an odd, like I'm, I, I still am not quite sure what the recipe was with for all of that. Because as a child, like I won every week was a different summer camp for me. <laughs> one week is Chinese, one is Bataan, one is this, one is that. I mean, I, you know, I was not this kid that focused on one thing and just devoted their life. I did, I was a jack of all trades and a master of none in a lot of ways, I guess. But I was just, I had my choir teacher who believed in me, who is the whole reason why I did music. Really? This high school choir teacher? Yeah, high school choir teacher. She, when I was in junior high, I had done music and then I stopped for a few years and wanted to focus just on my sports. And I, I, you know, I got to give hats off to my mom on that because music was my mom's first love. And she never once tried to talk me out of my decision. And she was right because if she had pushed me, I think I would have gone the other way even further. Mm. But instead she let me just find my own path. And it was my, my high school teacher, which was then my junior high choir teacher, saw me in the halls and was like, you know, what are you doing? Why, why are you not in choir? And I was like, I don't know. You know, I was just kind of like, I don't know. I was just doing other stuff, you know? And she said, I need you. And I was like, really? And she's like, yes, I, I need you in the choir. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do it. So I did that. And I did band to a lesser degree. I played saxophone. It was not a passion of mine. And my Spanish teacher was huge in my life was constantly saying, get out of Marietta, go explore the world, go do like, find what else is out there. There's so much out there. Mm. I, I mean, I was really lucky. My English teacher, Mrs. Eddie, she, she inspired my creativity, you know, like I just, I had a lot. I really yeah. did. I was really Very lucky. cool. So you finished at Marietta High School and end up at Ohio State, right? In, as a music major. Right. Well, it was odd. I had a very significant boyfriend from the time I was 15 to 20. He was two years older than I was. He ended up going to Ohio State. I mean, that certainly was part of the decision, but a big part of the decision was I wanted to go to the biggest school that there was because Marietta was so small in my eyes and was had nothing for me. Get me to the biggest school I can go. And so I did. And it was a great experience for me. School of music was kind of smallish. So I still had the intimacy of Mm -hmm. of that, but had all the resources of a big university. Did you start performing publicly while you were at college or? Yeah. And I started, well, when I was in seventh grade is when I started to actually do shows. So seventh grade, I went down to a community theater for like this youth production and went strictly to go there to accompany a friend. I had no intention of doing it myself, like none. Went there, 
I'm listening to everybody audition. They taught this one song. So I've heard this song about 30 times, right? You know, it's a short <laughs> thing. And, I, and I'm listening. And I guess, you know, they kept saying, you know, do you want to do it? And kudos to them for the tenacity of just keep coming up to me and asking me if I was ready to maybe try. By the 30th time of me hearing people <laughs> do it and me realizing that I could probably do it a whole hell of a lot better. I was like, yeah, I think I do. Yeah, I think I do want to do this. So I did. And it was the first time Kathy had ever sang out. And I was in a very, very old theater that had amazing acoustics. And I get up on stage and I belt out this song and it scares the shit out of me because my voice is so big and I had never sung out before. Yeah. And I like I had no idea. Right. Yeah. And so it was like a, out of a movie and chorus line, the director comes down, walks down the aisle of the theater, puts her hands on the stage, looks up at me and says, honey, you need to be on Broadway. And I got the lead. Whoa. But yeah, I got the lead. And of course, I didn't tell my mom. I just said I got in the production. <laughs> she thought I was in the chorus or something. And hearing her tell the story was so fun. But she said, you know, she sat there and the lights go down and I come from the back of the theater in tails and a top hat and I'm dancing my ass off and singing as I'm coming down the stage to go up on stage. And she goes, I sat there and looked at you and thought, huh, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't, it had all been, in, my path. it had all been between you and the hairbrush up to that point. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it's just so funny. You know, you just never know what your potential is yeah. until you try. You just don't know what you're capable of. You just got to do it. Right. Yeah. But it's so hilarious to me that that was so invisible to to your mom. That just what a moment that what a moment that must have been for her. Oh yeah, she was just like I. I mean, she just had no idea. Yeah. All she'd been doing is carting me around to sports, you know, <laughs> my whole life, and and making me take piano lessons against my will. <laughs> I, yeah, like you said, she gets she gets to you a right. That's right. That typing. <laughs> So connect the dots for us, at least. What's the string from that first moment on stage through Ohio State? And because you did some various other gigs after Ohio State and before landing with Shadowbox, right? And I really want to hear, there's so much I want to hear about Shadowbox and how the concept came about and all of your leadership challenges, but in particular, the the transition from Steve to you has got so much, I think, to, can shed so much light on moving through a career, but, but take us back to just fill in, fill in the dots here of what key things connect you to eventually Columbus and Shadowbox. Noting the fact that you only just moved to Columbus actually physically a couple of weeks ago after commuting for two hours at a shot. <laughs> right, exactly. So I went to Ohio State and through the urging of my choir teacher who had said, hey, what are you thinking of doing? for your career. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, I was, I student taught my own high school, my own class, I student taught my brother's class. I really loved teaching. My mother was a teacher. I really loved journalism. I loved being on TV. I thought that would be really cool. You know, I had not even thought really about forming. You know, I thought about going to the creative forming arts school, like living with my aunt when I was in high school for a little bit, but my sports were too important to me and I didn't want to give it up. So I didn't. And when I said, I, you know, I don't really know. And she said, I think you should do music. And I was like, really? And she's like, she said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, if I audition and I get in, do I have to do it? And she said, no. And I said, okay, well then I'll audition. You know, I think <laughs> I'll have lose. So I learned one Italian song, one aria, and one art song specifically for this. I had not sung classically ever, right? I had done show choir and choir and stuff like that. So 
So I, I prepared those and I ended up auditioning only for the head of the department, which was a little intimidating just to have one woman sitting in this room and you're singing for her, right? But in the end, I was accepted and I was accepted as her student. And I did not understand the weight of that because apparently she just didn't accept undergrad. She was mainly graduate students. Yeah. But she took me on and she, you know, really put me on a classical path, you know, and I was going down that path. And then I was in college and I heard about this guy doing this rock opera. Wait, who, who was who was that professor at Ohio State? Miss Helen Swank. Helen Swank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK, so there you are cranking along, preparing a classical vocal career. Oh, yeah. And I was going to take it by storm. I was singing with Opera Columbus. I was doing Columbus Light Opera. You know, I was, you know, I wasn't having roles there, but I was in the course. I was getting paid. I was doing more professional work than I was collegiate work at that point. But I heard about this guy doing this rock opera. I was one of the very few, few students that was progressive enough to potentially do something like that. So I thought, yeah, you know, I'll do it. It's a rock opera. I'm going to put it on my resume and get out. And so this was? 87. Steve Geyer. Yeah, Steve Geyer. Tell me more about Steve. I actually, I think I saw him on stage once, but never really met him. He is your, he was a genius. He was brilliant artistically, intellectually. He was very driven. He was also the quintessential artistic director, unpredictable, moody. The art was first and foremost. He was just that guy. Was he doing art full time at this point? No, he well, he was trying to. He was doing a couple other like every artist does when you first start out, right? You're doing a whole bunch yeah. of different other stuff. He was modeling, he was catering, he was running a landscape company, he was trying to do theaters, doing all that, and and then decided that this was gonna be his 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 life's work. He wanted to start writing rock operas. So he pulls together a cast of people and you know, we don't have a theater space. We ended up doing it at the Masonic Temple. I mean, he was very resourceful. And he had very, he had a very big vision. I think sometimes his vision, and maybe probably not to his detriment. I don't know. It just, I mean, it was what it was. And I have <laughs> yeah. no idea. But his, his vision was a little bit ahead of what he could actually potentially pull off sometimes at that point. That's um, not all bad. No, it's not all bad, you know. But we did the first show. It wasn't good. It was his original work. It was called Dawn of Infinite Dreams. Yeah. It was about Merlin, the show. That's right. It was about Merlin, the magi- magician. That's right. right. That's right. And, you know, it was kind of about the quest and the journey and finding your power and, you know, yeah. all of that. And so, you know, I think there was a really interesting underlying message there. But the show was had a lot of flaws, a lot of flaws. But one of the wonderful things about being an artist is that you take notes and you try to do better. And so he completely rewrote the show, you know, and to tried it again. And it was a little bit more successful. The first time we completely lost our ass. Second time we didn't lose our ass as much. <laughs> and the third time we kind of broke even. So, you know, we were on the right path. And so, yeah, but I fell in love with the idea of contemporary music. And I, I loved the idea of telling a story through music. Opera was, it never was something that was true to me, that I felt in my heart. I was good at it, and so I did it. And I got to perform, and that was cool. But when I started doing the contemporary music, rock and all that, even though I was not good at it at that point, I was not. I had an opera voice trying to do rock genre. It's a bad combination. And it it took 18 months to untrain my voice when I realized I did not want to do opera as my life's work. Those are a couple of sentences that a geologist struggles to understand. Tell me more about 
What's different in your voice between what do you need to unlearn and add in to, to move from opera to, to rock? Sure. So, you know, with opera, there's vibrato, a heavy vibrato. Vibrato tends to be there most of the time. What does vibrato sound like? It's like the waver in your voice. Like, okay. Oh, that's vibrato. Okay. Right? And it's, you know, when you hear Pavarotti, it's got that big voice and the yeah. big vibrato or whatever. Well, you don't hear that in rock music. In rock music, it's more... It's more forward. It's belting, okay. which is a way that you use your chest voice. It's a, it's a big voice. With opera, you use your head voice a lot more, or your falsetto. Mm. Um, so the, the mechanics are different. But for me, I was able to use my training of opera, untrain myself, train myself again for rock music and do it correctly and not blow myself out. And I had to, I, I look back on it now and I realize I had to do that. I had to go through that so that I could teach all these other performers that would come up underneath me how to sing rock music and do it correctly. It's like what ballet is to every other form of dance. Ballet is just a good foundation. Yeah, it's yeah. a good foundation. You get your discipline or whatever, but doesn't mean it's too upright for a hip hop dancer, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. so, or salsa. Or yeah. salsa or anything like that, yeah. right. But it was a great learning experience for me and it was a struggle. There were a lot of tears. I cried a lot of tears because I had this in my heart and I couldn't get my body to do it, but I'll be damned if I gave up. Like I was yeah, like, no, I yeah. will make this happen. Right. <laughs> and the other part of that too, is that classical, you know, you're told what to do. Like you're mm. told how to do this. You're told what to do. You're told to with the blues. It's like, here's a general idea. Make your shit up, you know, like make it up. Like, <laughs> yeah. do your, and that idea was terrifying to me. Really? Like, oh my God. No. I'm like, just Tell me, I was one of a struggle that Steve and I first had when we were working together is he did everything by ear. Well, I, I didn't do by ear. I looked at a score and knew what the vocal line was and could sing it. And so that was a real struggle for me to have to change and develop that skill set. And I still don't, I, I still don't have a skill set like the musicians do, where the musicians will go, well, it's a G chord, and then we're gonna go to that. Like, I don't hear that. I know what fits in the chord and I know what a G chord is on the piano and I can figure it out for vocal purposes. Thank you again, mom. <laughs> but, <laughs> they, but they have a fluency of comprehension. That, oh yeah. Is that, that, that what yes, you're saying? That, yeah. And really, you know, if I would get my button gear, I should develop that a little bit more and try to have that. But some other skill sets have taken precedent. <laughs> Yeah, so I want I want one more little bit of musical education from you. I'm intrigued that you fell in love with telling stories through music, but opera wasn't really in your heart, and yet opera is telling stories through music. What's the contrast that didn't did not grab you with opera? Because you are full on when you're telling stories with Shadowbox, <laughs> whether it's blues or belting rock. It's glorious, and it is absolutely full on. It, it's so clear it's coming completely from your soul. Thank you. Thank you. I think because it wasn't a story that resonated with me. Okay. It wasn't my story. And I think one of the things that I... I think makes sets, you know, what, what's your di differentiator, right? And we as people, like what makes us different from other people? And I think one of the differentiators for me as a performer than, than others, and something that we teach at Shadowbox, because I think it's so important, is that even with the rock song, you're a character. Who are you talking to? 
Who are you? What's your circumstance? Why are these lyrics important to you? And sometimes it is, you know, it's just a beautiful song that you're singing to the audience and that's fine and that's okay. But there are other times where you could take a song to a whole different level if you can personalize it and you know why you feel the way you feel and why the the lyric is going this way and you know why words fail to communicate that emotion and you choose to just do an ooh yeah. or a hum or something like that you know i think there's just so much power in that and then to have the music behind you is just it's such a it kind of gives it's your air beneath your wings and yeah. you know so you're still in college when you start working with Steve on the Merlin show. Yes, yes. You know, I give him credit for pushing me administratively. One of the crazy cool things about Shadowbox, and and we'll come back to this, I hope, and tell more stories about it, is all of you do everything, like waiting the tables and serving the drinks and taking, doing the seating and cleaning up afterwards and you name it. And and it started because you were a struggling troop that couldn't afford to hire the help but you've carried it on for, for very different reasons. Yes. He's the one that gave me the confidence. He pushed me because I was very enthusiastic. I was very passionate about what we were trying to do. And I wanted to share it with people. So he kind of christened me the PR person. And I had no idea what to do with PR. You know, I had, I had no background in this at all. They didn't teach any of this stuff in college. You know, they didn't teach you how to self-promote. They didn't teach any of that. But I was willing to try and I just made phone calls and I learned how to write a press release. But I think there's so much power in not knowing and making it your own because I was unconventional, but I was authentic and I did things the way that I felt best represented who we were. And when we went to New York, after we did the first couple of rock operas, we had opened a couple of theaters and I'm probably gonna jump all over on this timeline. But when we went to New York to go off Broadway and that was in 96, I think, or 97, they told us that, you know, you, you can't go to New York if you don't have a PR firm. Well, we couldn't afford a PR firm. That was not even an option. Like just raising the money we could get to get there was all we had. And I honestly was like, why do we need a PR firm? Nobody can sell this project like I can. Like nobody can speak to this like that I can. And so I thought, no, I can do it. And I got us on Good Morning America. I got us in New York Times. I got us on in Swing Magazine, which was David Lorenz Magazine, who's Ralph Lorenz's son. And all because I didn't know that I couldn't or that yeah. I should, I just did it, right? One of the things I've heard you say that I just completely adore is we didn't even know where the ball was going, but we just kept rolling it. <laughs> it's, so it's so true. I mean, there's so much power in just moving forward. Don't stop. Yeah. Don't stop. I mean, you can pause reassess, maybe change your direction, but you don't stop. You don't sit down in the middle of the road. You remain standing, take a breath. And if you need to take a hard left, you take a hard <laughs> left, but you put one foot in front of the other and you keep going because you just, you can't predict the outcome. You just have to do it. There's so many unknowns. So you just can't control it. All you can do is just control that you're willing to take in the information that's coming to you and make the best decision you can with the information that you have at that time. At that time. And, and yeah, there, and there's no guarantee that's going to work out. But if you have the courage to try, you'll get some chastising lessons every time you stumble or fall a little bit. But at least I've certainly found this to be true. Even when I just stumbled and scraped my knee and bumped my chin, 
I realized I, well, I learned something that gave me a little, little like a little sprout, a little shoot of confidence that I'll try a next step. And, and you know, and if you've got the ability to kind of, sometimes you make them small steps just so that if you do trip again and stumble and scuff the other knee, it's not that big of a fall, but, but you're still moving forward. Right. It's the key thing. That's right. And, and your pace changes throughout your life, depending on where you are. Sometimes yeah. you're swiftly and sometimes you're taking it slow and steady. You know, you kind of have to just, you have to roll with it. And I think that's so important. I, and I think that was one of the things that, you know, it gave me the courage when I started doing PR, it gave me the courage to audition for the school of dance. I had no, no real training at all. I was a huge cheerleader, national champion, cheered in the hula bowl, like big dancer, big club dancer, but no ballet, nothing like that. What I did have, I it was when I was very, very young, but I was good at dancing and I knew I was good at dancing and I loved it so much. And my electives, when I would take dance electives, they would say, why are you not in school of dance? And I thought that's ridiculous. I can't do that. Like, I can't, what are you talking about? I can't do that. Why, why would you say that? So, right? so, so every one of the things you've done, you've had, before you start, you've had this moment of, wait a minute, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. But then you've just gone and done it. I know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even really give myself a pep talk. Like I just was like, well, I, at that point I was getting so many scholarships to maintain, stay in school. I'd already graduated with my vocal performance degree, cum laude. And I did that well. And that was great. Even though I was down a different PR path. And and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go back and get my master's in PR because that's what I'm doing. I lasted one week. I sat in there and I'm like, I know all this shit. I'm not paying money to get this. I'm out. <laughs> so I quit. And so then I was like, well, what else could I do? And I was like, dance. I really love dance. At that point, you know, I'm like 24, maybe. So older than an older student, but still only 24. And I was like, I'm going to audition for school dance. And so I go and they're like, okay, you know, they're looking at me. They're like, okay, so do you want to get your master's in dance? I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't even have any training. Like I, I, don't, I can't get a master's and I don't have any training. I just want to audition for school dance. And so they're so perplexed, you know, and they're like, okay. I'm like, I said, listen, I don't know what the terms are. You show me what the move is and I can do it. But you can't like, you know, if they start saying a tendu or whatever, I had no clue what any of that meant. Yeah, none of the vocabulary, just all the moves. None of the vocabulary, right. <laughs> you know, and, and no real technical training other than I was I was a good physical mimic. So I could see what they were doing. I would understand how I needed to carry myself to, to get the job done. And I got accepted. And that was that was probably one of the most pivotal moments for me as an artist and as a person, because I knew I didn't have any training. I had no expectation other than I enjoyed it and I wanted to be better. And so I just did it. And it was so freeing to me as an artist to just like, cause with opera, my identity, I was, I, my identity was wrapped up as a singer. And so I think it, that's why it took me so long because I felt like I should be able to do it faster than I was able to mm. untrain my voice. I felt like I should be ahead of where I was and I wasn't, and I was getting in my own way. Right. Uh, and with dance, there was no wall. I yeah. was like, let's do this. And I just, you were just totally exploring the realm I was of dance totally exploring yeah. and succeeding and loving it and just understanding why I was there and was real clear on what it was that I wanted to gain from it. And it was pivotal for me. It was transformational for me. And I look back on that time in my life and am so grateful that I had the dance teachers that I had that were supportive 
of, you know, yeah. an older student coming in as an undergrad doing dance. I had no training, but they were willing to work with me. And it wasn't like I was the kid in the back of the class. I wasn't that. I was right up front. I was doing it. <laughs> but they were encouraging. And I, I'm really grateful to them for that. Yeah, it's cool. So let's fast forward a little bit. You've been with Shadowbox. I think you've been with Shadowbox 20 years. When when did Steve pass away? Oh, Steve passed away in 2018. 2018. So I was in my 30th You're year. In your 30th year, you've been working alongside this crazy charismatic guy for, for 30 years and been doing admin and PR and all sorts of things. And, and for the goodly portion of the last couple of years, you're all kind of nursing each other and carrying Steve through a, a ferocious battle with cancer. And then he, he passes away and the shadow box baton comes to you. In normal organization, any organization, if the moment comes where you're promoted from being colleague or teammate with a group of people just to being like their first line supervisor, it, that's a notoriously tricky transition. Your sense of yourself has to change. Your understanding of the role has to change. Lots about how you handle yourself. And, and every relationship you've had with colleagues also changes and it and sometimes doesn't work right it's sort of who who the hell are you you used to be my coffee pot buddy it had to be that on steroids on both the personal transformation side and the and the organizational and the community transformations like tell me what was that like and then then to have the grief of a 30 year turbulent and and sort of eccentric but still a 30 year working artistic partnership and friendship it feels like a decade ago, you know, between that and the pandemic. There's so much transformation that happened. I'm very fortunate that I have the colleagues that I have. And I also think that my role as CEO was nothing about power. I d didn't care about that. I didn't take Steve's office. You know, I, I, that's not what it was. What I wanted to do was to look at the opportunity to lead the company with my colleagues by my side in a way that we felt was us. When Steve was going down and we were presenting our first sketch comedy and rock and roll show or music show without him, there was a little deer in headlights, right? And I had come from the hospital and I remember sitting down with Julie, Jimmy and David and I remember saying, listen, your only goal is to produce our show, not Steve's show, our show. What do you like? That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. We're, we're making our show. What do we like? Because it's so subjective, right? Art is so, like, you know, and Steve made some decisions that I didn't necessarily always agree with. On other times, he was absolutely brilliant and no one will ever come up with those ideas because those were unique to him. Well, the same was going to be true for us. And they had to trust in their ability to do that. And they did. And I was really careful to not let anybody know Steve was having a health issue for the first four or five months. I mean, I asked the staff, please do not talk about this because once again, I've always been like this. I wanted to do it on our own to prove that we could do it before I let people in on what we were doing. And was that to prove, to have proof for the outside world or to prove to yourselves? Both, I think. Steve was such a charismatic guy that I knew that there were gonna be a lot of people that thought we were just gonna curl up and die without him. And this company was absolutely built on him and built from his leadership and his vision. But he had a lot of support along the way. And I knew that, you know, <laughs> yeah. and this was a chance for my colleagues 
to really to do it, to like, let's do this. And and so we did. It wasn't until we had produced two of our highest grossing shows without him that we then began to reveal what we were actually facing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and that was important to us as well as navigating. He's not his full self. He knows he's not his full self. He knows he's on limited time and also leading with compassion as it relates to him, to making him to not feel like we're rejecting everything that you've ever done and we're starting over, right? Yeah. And not doing that, you know, we that's not, but we couldn't do it the way he would have done it because that was him, you know, and that wasn't us. And so it was really, there was a great sense of trust. I mean, I'm the, I'm only the CEO I am because of my colleagues and how amazing they are at their job. And one of the things that I think is my superpower is I love people. I love people. I love their brokenness. I love their powers. They're all, I love them as a whole. And I think that my number one job is to minimize their weaknesses, put them in a place where they're able to really thrive on what they're super good at and to manage the personalities, right? And, and to make sure that we're moving forward and that we have a real respect, a, a, a real respect and all of that from the top down. And that's something that we built as a team, you know? Yeah. Ooh, it was, I also, I read a lot of books, Kathy. I read a <laughs> lot of books during that time. I was going to oh, ask my. you, there had to be, there had to be something propelling you. And maybe it was just that conviction about, this is not going to stop us and we're going to become the new company that we are. But those are tough transitions as a, as a leader. However, heavily or lightly you wear your title, there's still a lot of people looking to you in various ways to have slightly more of the picture, a little clearer view, see a bit further around the next corner. And, you know, you've got to feed your, your mind and your soul at some point and keep having new come in to help you with that. So I was wondering, where did you turn? Uh, Did you have mentors or advisors that, because this was such a private thing. The toughest part of it was the time you knew you needed to not be telling other people about it. You needed to be the collegial leader of the troop. How do you stay afloat through that time? Grit, determination, and a true belief that we were not done. A true belief that that if it had just been me, I don't think I could have done it. But because I had my colleagues and because I knew them as people and I knew them with their talents on stage and off stage, that we were able to do this together. And I mean, I, you held each other up. Yeah, we do. We lift each other up. And I went back to school. I mean, I truly, I was reading Simon Sinek. I was reading Ray Dalio. I was reading Tony Shea, Happiness. I mean, I read every leadership business book. I read the Walt Disney CEO book. I read, I mean, Starbucks, you name it, I read it. And not that it had to do with art. Most of it didn't have to do with art, right? And I also did a lot of just, you know, kind of growth, spiritual growth, you know, yeah. type of things. Because for, you know, for me, art is our practice, right? Yeah. It, it, it is our practice. It's the same thing and so to make sure that to make sure that we are being authentic that we're really clear on what it is that we're trying to achieve and going back to school and going how does everybody else do it yeah there's so much power in taking what's useful discarding what's not right and then and then trying playing around with it making it your own 
there is like a DNA to good leading. It's not maybe it's not three strands and it's not made up of the stuff that the biological DNA is made of. But but yeah, you can find nuggets in any and it's even not just business, but leading any complex organization. You can find elements that you can't cookie cutter them into your world. You're going to have to transform them into your world. But the underlying bit is true. That's right. And you can hold to that. And, and I also think a lot of it has to do with our motives are pure. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, this is not, I'm not trying to bleed another $5 from this patron. I'm not trying to snow something over with one of our lower staff members. We are doing the best that we can with the, with the resources that we have at this time to lift everybody up. And that's important. There's a trust, a trust. Yeah, so that's something else that has struck me about Shadowbox. I've I've sensed this is true, but I want you to tell me if if it's true and and how it works. And it goes to that, you know, the notion of shared purpose, which everyone throws around a lot. But in the world I come from, you know, the the spaceflight world, you've got a a cast of hundreds, if not sometimes a thousand, who have a set of scientific and technical objectives to get done on a flight that matter. They matter financially and pride and everything else. And then around that, you have the reality that you're going to put people on this bomb that you're calling a rocket ship instead of a bomb, but it's a bomb. And somewhere we have to be all about the success of the mission and bringing the crew home alive. And the degree of trust, broken people, ambitious people, all those dynamics are there, but still the level of trust and confidence I had that everyone on that team to first and second order, they were about the mission. And you'd argue and have fights now and then. But you know, in our world, you would reach a moment a few days before a flight, very formal moment, where leaders in each discipline had to sign a piece of paper that essentially said, we've played it all straight for all the right reasons. No one's done egotistical BS in our world. And I, I personal promise these guys will get home alive. And so if you started getting some ego games going, you could look at someone else and say, good, fine, you're going to sign that certificate. You're insisting that two and two is five and you're just on, on a tantrum to win this fight? Fine. going to be your name on that certificate. And that would clean that crap out of a conversation pretty quickly. The stakes aren't like that in, in your world. And I don't know that you have ceremonial or formal moments like that. But watching you guys from bussing tables to serving meals to everything that you all do as a troop, it has always felt to me like somehow you have a similar shared purpose and, and confidence, trust and confidence in each other's motive. No one's going to elbow another performer aside to get, is that, how does that happen? Because when I talk to other organizations, I try to figure out how can you make even a few percentage, a small percentage of that impact that this shared purpose had in my world? If you could get 5 or 10% of that in your organization that sells toothpaste, how transformative might it be for your workforce and your customers and your bottom line? But I'm still always interested to have another opportunity to learn from a different realm about what is that essence. To your point about reading all the business books, what, are, what is the essence of this point that really can be taken to other domains? I think we, in a lot of ways, you know, it's a double-edged sword, but as artists, we are driven to do what we do. And 
believe me, if we could be happy doing something else, we would, because it's too hard. <laughs> Being an artist is really hard, you know? I even say that to my some of these people that audition. I'm like, you know, can you see yourself doing anything else? Would you see yourself being happy being an accountant? Go do that because this is not easy, but it's the only way for those of us that have this genetic makeup that compels us to create and to put ourselves out there. There is so much vulnerability and not just being on stage and throwing out your emotions and performing, but putting your ideas up on stage, right? Like for all the world to see, and they're gonna pay money to come see what we <laughs> thought was a good idea. And then we're gonna put our asses up there and do it ourselves. And, you know, and they're going to say, yeah, okay, well, that was worth that ticket price. Like, that's huge. And because, you know, we create our own work. And I think that's a real difference. A real differentiator for us is, I mean, we are all in the boat together. You guys create an astonishing number of, in a pre-pandemic season. You create, what, like 19? Yeah, it was like 19 different original productions, events. Per you know, year? Right. But we are actually actively trying to pull it back. It was, it was too much. You know, the... The organization schedule when Steve was at the helm was based off of different circumstances and things have changed the way we have the organization structured and all of that. And one of the things that we are actively doing is pulling back the schedule, pulling back the schedule, allowing people to have a life outside of Shadowbox, allowing them to go on vacation before it was just to make things work. We, it was just every minute of every day. And now we have grown and evolved as an organization and we have the support that was so critical to allow us to breathe a little easier because, you know, it requires rest, like serious rest. And so that's, that's really important. I understand what you're saying and how that would drive you know, every individual performer. The cohesion that you all seem to have as a troupe. I mean, I don't get the sense that there's anybody in the company by title or by a number of times they've gotten a lead or, or anything else that you know, thinks they're the rock star or thinks they're very entitled. And you guys all seem like bandmates that, you know, so I could, I could get up on stage and play guitar, but that's not going to do much for a number that really wants guitar and sax and drums or whatever else. So did that cohesion always exist? Is that something that had to be generated? Is it something that you've, because Steve was kind of us above everybody else rock star. Is that something that you had to help transform after his passing and sort of blossom anew for this new company and its new future? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I am who I am and I had to do some things differently and my colleagues I think that they were, they, they were there too. You know, it was, I, oh God, it was just timing is everything. Right. And we were just kind of ready to take on this challenge with his blessing. He blessed he, his number one thing for me was just be courageous. Just try. You just need to try things, try things. And he told that to all of us. And so we did. And I think that's, you know, in so many ways, art is science. It's, it's an experiment. And a lot of times you go in you're not knowing what necessarily the outcome is going to be. You wanted to see what happens. There's a, a lot of surrender to it. So we really worked that. And, and I think a lot of it too was predictability. I think one of the strengths that I have over Steve is that I'm pretty consistent. I'm not, I'm not on a roller coaster or anything like that. And 
you know, cause it's, it's hard when you're living a really hard schedule and then you're not quite sure what you may walk into. Yeah. Very volatile situation on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And it was, you know, it was painful for him too. There's no way you can be that without him experiencing his own, you know? So I don't think he was ever trying I don't know. I I can't speak for him. It's not like I thought it, there was maliciousness or or anything like that. I think he just struggled in some areas. You yeah. know, he's still just a person. Yeah. <laughs> you know? As brilliant as he was, he was still a person with all the flaws that people have. You know, and that just happened to be his. So 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 yeah. You know, I, I again, it's I think our situation as far as being artists, we get our homework, we get our notes from our teacher. We go back, we work on it, we redo it, we come back and we're better. And that's what we try to do every single day. That's my mantra is like, your only goal is to be better today than you were yesterday in all things, in all things, you know, and the other thing I've said is every action you take or don't take, every sentence you say or don't say, and every thought you have or don't have leads us either one step closer or takes us one step back as an organization. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of power in the sense that, it is in my best interest to have my my youngest and newest be the strongest they can be because the stronger they become the less i have to do that <laughs> <laughs> i want them to succeed i want them to be brilliant i want them to be great you know cuz i got, we we at the top level have other things to do you know and that's something that we're working on what does it look like to grow old at Shadowbox now you know yeah yeah right it's we've never had that here we are what's this look like and so we're <laughs> navigating all of that you know I can't be doing on the worm on on stage much you know any longer you know I, I had to hang up the red dress <laughs> Stacy you've also talked a lot about how the discipline of the artistic practice helps with the business side of things and Again, this is what happens when you talk to a geologist. I'm not sure I understand what you mean when you say the artistic practice. So I'd love for you to unpack that a bit for my education. And then I'm interested in both how you see them connect. And also, it's one thing to be dealing with your troop, your company, your audience on this unpredictability and the see where it goes and take your chances. But I'm curious how that necessary dynamic of your world how do you make that mesh with you know funders and board members and you know other stakeholders in your world who who are more accustomed to make a plan check the boxes you can analyze things you can know you can know somewhat in advance whether a plan is going to work and you know you sort of kind of can't in your business wow yeah that's a lot to um <laughs> I'll circle back on the artistic practice. First of all, let me let me talk about the funders and the board members and all that. First of all, I w- I was incredibly fortunate that I actually had a board, outside board in place starting in the fall of 2016 and Steve went down the beginning of 2017. We had never had an outside board before. It was just us, you know. Ah. And it was and so as we grew and as we evolved, you know, one thing I told Steve, I'm like, this is non-negotiable. We have to have this. So I cherry picked my board members, right? And obviously we have a mutual friend who is yes. my chair, Carol. And I honestly, I am so incredibly grateful for them. I don't know how I could have gone through that without them. And I think between funders and board members and 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 su- sponsors and supporters, you know, you don't you don't sponsor Shadowbox. You don't support Shadowbox because you like the tried and true. Yeah. That's not who okay. we have. 
who we have are innovators, people who are adventurous, people who like to roll up their sleeves and get a little dirty and take risks, you know? So get uh, the right class of investors, kind of. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. And, and, you know, and also there's, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is risk mitigation. Like we, this is not a bunch of artists just throwing shit up against the wall, hoping it works. There's so much planning and detailed work to make us as sure-footed as we possibly can as we move forward. Up and per- get the chances of success set up as best they can be. As best we possibly can with the information that we have at that time, yep. right? And, and we move forward. And then one of our strengths is that we're flexible. If we get down the path, we are not going to keep going down the path if we see it's going to lead us to falling off a cliff, yeah. you know? Just because we said change. we would. Yeah, right, Exactly, just because we said we would. I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gone, yeah, we were going to do that. I was wrong. Ha, yeah. I was wrong. That was a really bad idea. We're not going to do that. We've decided we're going to do this instead. And you have to be okay with that. And and I think there's so much power in, in just owning it and just, you know, it's really not that big a deal. Like I fucked up. Sorry. Made a bad choice. But a lot of times the bad choice is the, you had to make that bad choice to find the good, right choice. Yeah. You didn't know the right choice at that point until you went there and you went, oh, okay. Yeah, that's not so good. Yeah. That's a good. One of my very favorite books is, and I shouldn't try to mention this because I think I'm going to forget the author's name. It's about performers like, you know, why does Jerry Seinfeld still play small, piddly little comedy clubs? He's Jerry Seinfeld for crying out loud. Or, or Chris Rock, for that matter. And it's because no one can get to the great final product on paper and in their mind. You've got to have, you have to have a way to try and test and see and adapt. And so Chris Rock is not going to walk out on the bespoke stage in Vegas for the gigantic crowd and try a joke for the first time. He's going to try it on an audience of 30 or 40 or 50 people at a small club where if it bombs, you know, you didn't quite get the timing right or not quite the right metaphor or whatever it is, and it bombs or it's weak, he can try again the next night and iterate and refine it until it it is ready to go into the Vegas show. That's right. I mean, I, th- that has been probably the hardest thing about this pandemic is trying to do our art form without a critical component, which is an audience. And it's not just that their patrons and their financial support and coming in that it's not, this is perfect timing. And the fact that we just had donor previews for our sketch comedy and music show this past weekend. And we have seen these sketches since March, 2020, we've videotaped them and we've done all this or whatever. And now we're finally putting the show up and it's been, I can't even tell you how many iterations it's had, but we finally get it up. And with an audience, like you see things so differently And you're like, oh, that's not the end. We need to cut it over here or that. We don't need that. That's just dragging. There's no, it's not motivating anything. Cut that. And being able to put it in front of an audience, take notes, make changes and try it again. It's the process of the artistic practice, which is so, and kind of circling back to what you're asking, that's it. One of the things that I talk about is, With technology in this day and age, it's just so amazing. The things that these kids have at their fingertips, the resources, the the books, the videos, all that, it's just mind boggling, right? But what it hasn't done is teach patience or talk about the journey because everything is so instantaneous that when so many times when they struggle just a little bit, they want to throw up their hands and go, I can't do this. When they don't, you know, they don't have to walk 
four blocks to go to the library to do their research. They don't have to wait for a voicemail message when they get home. They don't have to wait for a letter to come through the mail. They like all of those things have been taken away, right? It's all on their phone and it goes with them. They can see a concert anytime they want. Yeah. They can see a movie anytime they want. So that's something that we as the older generation need to be aware of. It doesn't mean that this generation is bad or anything like that, but their circumstances are so different and such a critical part of character building, I think. And how do you overcome that? The only way to overcome that, do sports, do arts. I don't care how good of a guitar player you want to be. You can't be a good guitar player in two weeks. It doesn't work like that. And you can't do it just by watching someone else's YouTube. Exactly. You have to go through the practice of it. You have to go through the practice of it. You have to do it. You have to mess up. You have to slow it down. You have to try to speed it up. All of those things happen. You know, you have to run the mile. You have to shave a couple seconds off your mile, whatever it might be, but it's the work putting the work in. And that's what's so critical. And because we are willing to do that as artists, we are willing to do that as business people. And as business people, we will look at the hard facts. Like we'll look at a show and we'll go, oh my God, that is the worst piece of shit I have ever seen. How are we going to get, how are we going to get out of this? Right. Like how can we fix this? Well, we'll do the same thing with business and we'll look at things and we'll go, does that make any sense anymore? Like, why are we doing that? Like, I feel like that was, I always say, oh, I think that was shadow box 2014. When I feel like it's something that we've outgrown or it's not really aligned with who we are. Right. And I think because we are willing to do that, we become more flexible and we're realists when it comes to the business side of it. And, and we don't have a degree that says none of us have a business degree that says we ought to be doing what we should be doing. And yet we're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know? There's another dimension to the internet part of things I was interested to ask you, combining your career and skills as a musician and as an educator, because there's an element of the learning process of anything, math or language or whatever it is, even history, that is, you take some information aboard, there's a cognitive processing, and a step that's really vital to anchoring that learning and making it something that's truly yours and that you can now extrapolate and apply to circumstances you know, different than the circumstance that was described to you. The step that's really critical to that is to re-express it in some way. And, and that, can be, that can be by writing an essay about it. It could be by composing a dance about it or a song about it or, or a sketch or painting, however sophisticated or not it is. Just the step of making your mind integrate and re-express that is absolutely critical to really deep learning in any field. And do you have any thoughts about how do we continue to provide that kind of richness to young folks as, and in particular young folks as they develop as so much of the experience and even more and more of the schooling becomes this one-way input from the screen, from YouTube, from Zoom? When do I get to express? Well, and that's why the arts are so critical in school, right? To allow people to find their means of expression because everybody expresses it differently and there's no right or wrong. It's just a matter of, I feel like it's a, it's a matter. It's like, it's sharing, right. And it's a sense of giving back. And that's what the education programs that we did, that that's what that was all about. You know, we, Oh my God, I can keep a young singer. If I can lessen their journey 
by sharing what I know so that they can get there a little bit faster, but still with the richness, because I can just cut through the bullshit and just say, no, not good enough. Nope. Nope. Do it again. Uh -uh, uh Uh-uh. Then that's my purpose. That's what I'm there to do in that moment. Yeah. And this is one of the other areas I really wanted to talk with you about, because you guys, you run several programs that you and the troop created, not outside professional educators, just, just people who know the craft of music and what it takes to excel at it. But you also give away how many hundred thousand tickets? Yeah, well, we... <laughs> $150,000 worth of tickets or something like yeah. that in yeah. a normal performance year? Yeah, if people will, they're doing a fundraiser, you know, right. and able of eight to raise money for their, for their cause. And we give them tickets. It's a great exposure for us. We may get somebody through our doors that have never used it before, but as long as they're raising money, great. Yeah. You know, nobody uses the tickets. Well, darn, but yeah. oh well, yep. you know, but it was able to help that organization raise the funds that they need to do to support their mission. And so you're, goal, your, the way I've heard you express your goal with uh, some of your in-house youth education programs is to help young people learn how to be rock stars on and off stage. And I'm wondering, tell me, you've got to have a couple of favorite stories of some young person and your transformation with them or their transformation. So tell us a bit more about that program and some of what you've seen happen. Yeah. I mean, there's so many And probably some of the most powerful ones that I was relayed the story where there was a girl who participated in STEM Rocks the Box, which is one of our our education programs. And she was up in front of the board for I Know I Can scholarship and advocating for herself. And she credited her experience with STEM Rocks the Box as giving her the confidence to get up in front of that board and advocate for herself. And she got the scholarship. And the thing that's amazing is She was not a star player, but there's so much to be learned by being immersed in that. And when you see people putting themselves out there, that's one of the things that I really, really, really drive home is what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you fail? Like, really, is the world going to stop? No. Is somebody going to die? No. You may not hit the high note. You may not get the laugh. Oh, well, do it again. Yeah. Figure it out, right? (laughs) Like, it's not that, you know, it's not that big a deal. You may suffer, you may suffer a moment of embarrassment. Okay. And then there will be a next moment. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I've actually, I've thought about that a lot on, you know, for, for myself, because I think when I look back on my childhood, which was a great, was, I, I had an amazing childhood. I had an amazing childhood, but I lost my father when he was, when I was 12 and wow his own bottle of cancer for nine years. And I think that there was a, an understanding that bad things happen to good people sometimes and that life is short and that really like in the end, what do you have to lose? Right? Like there was just, there was so much to that. And, and also that he was such an amazing father for 12 years. I wouldn't change it for the world. I mean, was I sad he was taken away from me? Of course, of course I was. But I also knew at the age of 12 that I had it better than most people. And I remember looking at my grandmother and thinking, she has it worse. I lost my dad, but she just lost her, her son, son, who she knew for 37 years. Yeah. I knew my dad for 12. Yeah. And it's just life the wrong way around for a parent exactly. to lose a child. Exactly. You know, and everybody has that in their life somewhere. 
everybody, I don't care what they say, everybody has something like that. And I think it's defining, right? It is, it's absolutely defining, but it also, it gives you perspective and it grounds you. If you use, if you use your pain for good. (laughs) It can be catalytic and bring a lot of good in its wake. That's right. It can, it can completely derail people. Absolutely. It can derail people and send them into really deep, dark spirals, but it can also bring an unbelievable clarity in time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, creating art is painful. Let me tell you, it is not. (laughs) (laughs) This is not the easy road. This is not the easy road, man. I'm telling you, if you actually get a cat. I'm not sure there is an easy road in life, but I consider mine and I look at what you guys do and there is there's no way on God's great earth I think I could do what you do. Over and above the fact that I, I know for a fact that you do not want me trying to sing. But <laughs> Believe me, nobody wants me in the rocket ship, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so there's, we're coming close to the time you've agreed to give me. There's, there's one other story I'd love you to tell and set some of the context for. And it's about your work with women at the Marysville prison. And the one-liner that I took away from an interview I, I heard you do earlier, coming from this experience, was you commented that art art is a way for us to get out of our own prisons, which I just is a thought I t- completely love. It has so many dimensions of meaning to it. But tell us a bit about that work and how you came to be out at at the prison in the first place and and what's the trajectory for that work? Yeah. So I was very fortunate to have Pat Wynn Brown, who is very, she uh, won volunteer of the year for the Marysville Reformatory for Women. And she had asked me if I would, if Shadowbox would be willing to come in and, 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 and do a show or do some music, you know, for the women prisoners. And I had just never thought about it, you know, and I was really hesitant and I was really clear with her. I said, you know, my hesitation is not because I'm saying no, it's just because I hadn't, I had never thought of even diving into that kind of work. And I said, I feel more comfortable doing it myself before I bring anybody else in. Cause I don't understand. I, I don't know this dynamic. Right. So I agreed to be one of her presenters at this series that she has for these women. And we go in and it was so reinforcing that we're all the same. Like these people, these women that were in there, yes, they made some bad choices. They made some bad mistakes. Some were there just by being a victim of their circumstance or their lack of resources. And boy, did privilege, I was looking at privilege in the face sometimes, you know, like thinking, I bet if, you know, they had that person in their corner, they wouldn't have been in here. Yeah, yeah. But what was so amazing about it was how giving they were. And I got up and I, and I sang a song that's really emotional for me. It was, a, it was in a show that we had done. And the message is really beautiful. And I thought it would resonate with, with the women. And I said, you know, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. I drove up from Cincinnati. My voice is not, you know, this is not the kind of song you sing at 10 o'clock in the morning, right? <laughs> so I said, you know, bear with me. And I can't look at you guys. Like, I just want you to know, I can't look at you guys because I have to, I, I need to focus, you know? And so I sing the song and... As I'm singing it, I can feel, can feel their openness and their release of emotion. It was like their emotions were like at my feet. I can't even describe the experience. And I get done with the song and I look around and they're just like, you know, some of them are just in tears. 
and because the message resonated with them. And then we had fun, you know, when I led them through a voice class and you let them through a warm up and I let them through scales. A and they were laughing. And at the end, they were all singing and dancing with me. I love rock and roll. And they're up and clapping and we're dancing. And it was just, there was so much freedom. And it was so, it was an honor to be there with them. And they, you know, came up and hugged me and all of that. And I thought I need, we need to do more of that because I, I honestly, there's really no difference between those women and an underserved student that I work with. And it's the same thing. They just need encouragement. They made a mistake. They're a victim of their circumstance. They, they need to learn and move on and continue to grow. And I, it's, that's one of the things I'm so proud of that particular prison because there's so much, they're so into the, the transformation of them, not necessarily just the punitive, you know, aspect of it. It's like, how do we, how do we feed their souls? How do we let them feel again? Because for so many of them, they made bad choices because they were blocked, you know, emotionally, they, some trauma and they shut down and they shut off and their, the repercussions maybe were not first and foremost in their mind at that point in time. Right. One of the women came up to you and I think, oh, yeah. She is not getting out. <laughs> she she made a, a very specific choice and she is not getting out. And she came up and she said, Can How I old do you think you? she is? This woman. Oh, God, it's so hard. To, I, I would say probably late 50s and we'll be in there for. She's a lifer. She's not going to get out. She's not going to get out. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But she came up and, and she hugged me and she said, You allowed me to feel things that I haven't felt in years. And I thought, wow, that is like the best compliment I could ever be given. You know, I promised him, I'm like, I'm going to try to come back. And of course, then the pandemic hit. And so we're in a holding pattern, but, but we'll get back there. We've got a lot of ideas. It's just a matter of when they can, it's a, it's a slow moving process for, for obvious reasons, Yep. but I have high hopes that we'll be able to connect and, and, and make a difference and, you know, I got out of it as much as they did, maybe even more. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it would be an honor to be able to participate with them again. Well, I know every time I've seen them perform because the Harmony Project, the, the community choir yeah. here in town, chorus here in town also works uh, inside the prison. He does amazing work with them. Yeah. Amazing. And in their big, you know, their twice a year big shows, prisons mm -hmm. gotten to a point where they will let a cadre of the Harmony women come into town, into the nationwide arena and be on stage in front of you know thousands of people and sing and it, you saw it and heard it from that one person but i swear you can see it and feel it with these women in that even in that very large setting they are real they are appreciated you get the sense that they've come to see in themselves maybe for some of them for the very first time ever in their life that there is something in them that other people genuinely value and it's their contribution to this song. And it's just, I can't imagine anyone in that arena doesn't have tears at least welling in their eyes, if not running down their cheeks when they stand up to give those women the standing O that they always get. Absolutely. Uh, the, the courage, you know, the pain and sorrow and shame of being in that circumstance and then the the courage to step forward and join into something like that and then to come downtown town and sing is just amazing. It is. It is. And I think that's, you know, it's kind of a slap in the face and, and we're all on a path, on our own path. Some paths are a lot rockier and a lot hillier than others. And 
nobody has a smooth path. I don't care what they tell you. <laughs> nobody has a paved path. Looked really smooth in the rearview mirror. <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> now, exactly always right. was pretty foggy looking out the windshield, but man, it's really clear in the rearview mirror. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, so I think it's, you know, a lot of it is perspective. And I, I do believe in that there's not necessarily good or bad. It's just your perception. Clearly, there are some horrible things and incidences that happen. Absolutely, there are. But outside of those really big outliers, a lot of things I can look back on and go, thank God that happened because it led us here. Yep. You know, And a lot of it is just having the tenacity to keep moving forward and to be optimistic. You know, I am, what do I say? A realistic optimist is what I say. I like to lead with the enthusiasm of what something could be versus the fear of what it will be if we don't do this, you know? And it just, it makes it a lot easier to move through life, to be honest, <laughs> you know? It gives, it gives you momentum and it does. Momentum it gives you is energy. Big. It's yeah. energizing. That's right. That's right. So yeah, crazy. <laughs> well, well, Stacey, I'm going to try to get you back for multiple, multiple episodes of this. It is always a delight to talk with you. And thank you so much for you sharing so honestly and openly the, the depth and the value and the, the struggle, pain and joy of the artistic discipline of, of bringing such spectacular art to our community. You and your troupe both are real gems in our world. And it's, as always, been an absolute delight to spend time with you. Well, thank you so much. And it was a real, real honor to spend this time with you and Shadowbox, we're grateful to be in Columbus, man. We love this town and we love the people we serve. So thank you so much. More to follow. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.